are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. This week, we have the good fortune of continuing our conversation with Ariel Muller and Martin Su about their collaboration on Circular Leap Asia, a project exploring what it would take for manufacturers to take the lead on circularity. Last week, in part one of this conversation, we talked about the barriers suppliers face in terms of taking the lead on circularity. We wound up talking about an aspect that we haven't really talked much about before on this podcast, and that's supplier mindset. How do suppliers shift their mindset from simply executing a brand's demands to leading the conversation? And how can we support suppliers with this mindset shift in a way that doesn't reduce their challenges to mindset alone? If you haven't listened to part one of this conversation, be sure to go back and check it out. This week, we turn to networks and how to build relationships. What's the difference between value chains and value network? What are the different ways of creating value? How does this framing help us think about ways of creating trust? And within the context of COVID-19, what's the role of various players within these networks? From brands, to suppliers, to consumers, and government to ensure we emerge, ready to drive deep transformational change. Ariel is based in Singapore and is the Managing Director for Asia at Forum for the Future. Forum for the Future is a leading international nonprofit working with business, government, and civil society to solve complex sustainability challenges. Martin is the head of sustainability for Yichun International. Yichun International is a manufacturer of high-quality performance fabrics and neoprene rubber foam for globally recognized footwear brands. Founded in 1997 in Taiwan, Yichun International now operates in Taiwan, China, Vietnam, and Indonesia. Circular Leap Asia just published a new report sharing insights gleaned from the project, and we highly recommend reading it in full. You can find a link in our show notes. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to help us grow the conversation at manufactured underscore podcast. Not much of an Instagram person? We feel you. We have a love-hate relationship with social media, too. Sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. Let's start with the word network. Jesse and I both noticed in the report and actually throughout some of the content that Forum for the Future puts out that you seem to prefer to use the word network instead of chain. And I and we wanted to ask you about that word because I think it's important framing for then talking about relationships and trust. Uh, I Well, so for myself, I think the use of the word network over chain is to say that that we what when we create this new economy it's going to be based it's a new ecosystem of relationships um and it re- it represents um i think there's a couple reasons actually so i think one I always envision what we're doing is moving from chains to ecosystems and ecosystems represent that you're, it's a number of different relationships that are going to enable 
that transition to happen. The second thing is I think inherent in the word network is the recognition that there are a number of different actors in the system that will enable that transition. So there's the role of capacity building, there's the role of education, there's the role of technology, there's the role of finance and banks, there's you know the role of brands, there's the role of manufacturers, and it's all it's the agency of all of those working together to enable that transition. And I think so I think the use of the word network is reflecting that philosophy about how change actually happens. Yeah, it's something I think about maybe when Jesse and I were talking about it, we were thinking it's it's something about multiple centers, right? You yeah. have a network has multiple centers and it's not something that's hierarchical or top down, which the idea of a chain I think probably brings to mind at least for most people. So I, I actually want to respond to that because I like what you uh, said, because I think what you're saying, you said more explicitly, it's not a, about, it doesn't have inherent, with, it has a different articulation of how power is distributed. Mm-hmm. Where the chain has a point of view in terms of how power is distributed and a network actually says we're all interdependent <laughs> and power mm-hmm. is more evenly distributed. Yeah. And uh, multiple center can allow different uh, initial uh, can allow different players to initiate different activities at the yeah. same time. Well, in a chain, something always initiated by the top one, which is brand. But when you see it as a network, it's different. I think the whole concept is very important for sure. I think the profit actually determines your relationship and your power uh, and how much you have a say in the whole production and how much percentage that you make. Um, and obviously the biggest will be the brands and I think the retailer as well. So it, it's definitely making so that the relationship from the get-go is very different. And and I think what we were talking about earlier with Jesse's idea of like how, you know, we both gain profit um, or share profit is to change that percentage. And I, I don't know how open people are <laughs> to, to, to make that shift, you know, because uh, it, it's definitely a very, I guess the design the original design, if there's such a thing, of the, the world was not based on that. You go to the place where you pay lease for manufacturing. And, and, and if that redistribution of profit would totally break that, right? Uh, not saying we're not paying people fair now, but if you want to make it more fair, uh, they will earn more, which is a good thing. But then it also means people who used to get a larger piece of the pie would be, you know, changed. I was going to build on that because when you guys were talking earlier, I was thinking, well, actually, when we talk about what are the business models that enable a circular economy or what are circular business models, people always think, oh, you're changing the loop, you know, or you're building a loop. Sorry. Mm. Actually, circular business models are you're distributing value more evenly across the network or the supply chain, however you want to say it. That's the business model that's going to enable circularity. That requires uh, trust and a more equal partnership, actually. Yeah, I was going to ask the same, Jesse. So, how do we build trust within this relate within this within you know the system that we have? How do we build trust and networks to emerge from, especially now with everything that's happening with COVID and having a time, a moment when the industry is really in transition, so that we can come out of that ready to drive transformation. A lot of Either the brands or us as a supplier, there are always some kind of goals or some kind of uh, 
uh, vision that we want to become or want want to achieve at some point. Um, but but the, the, I think the problem is sometimes that goal or vision was not shared or was not agreed upon between both parties, and that can create a problem, right? Because we are like a network, right? We are interconnected. So how can I reach my goals if you don't buy from me? Or how can you achieve your goal with this in profit or in sustainability if I don't follow your rules? It's impossible. But I think the current issue is that that goal itself is not always clear. It might look clear, but it's not. It's clear maybe to the general public that a certain brand reached a certain percentage of recycled material, going to be carbon uh, neutral or dropping down certain percentage. Seemingly clear. But how does that work in practice? Thus far, I don't think that's that clear to, to us as a supplier. And I, I think what we are trying to do here going forward to, to build more trust uh, is to share what we plan to do and share as much as we can uh, and to, to let people know that being transparent and map out the potential investments and structure going forward will be like to reflect on what they wanted to do uh, to see if that's something they wanted to get involved or not. Um, so I think both parties need to do that. And hopefully these two and what we have in mind are very similar. And then trust will be more built to go forward in regard to security. Because for me, I think trust is there. Trust has been always there for a long time. But that trust was very simple. It was it was just like, I, I'm asking for these three colors, this amount, this material, get it to me next Friday. Done. You know, that, that, that's very simple. But the way of going ahead with trust, I think it's not about deliver, uh, delivering a product that have been going on for the past 20 years. It's more about how do we build trust to change the system. At least that's the way I treat this, this question. And I think that needs to be more commitment and more transparency. And neither of those are happening that much right now, I would say. And it's not totally the brand's fault. I think it's also the supplier's fault. We, we didn't really need to do that. A lot of the, the, the disclosing of information in regard to water usage, electricity, all those kind of things does not have only starting to happen in the past maybe five or so years. And also depends on which brand you're talking about. Some of them started earlier, some of them started later, some of them only ask for a little bit, some of them ask a lot more information. Uh, but I think if we were to change the system to be more collaborative and knowing what each other are doing, we need to be transparent. And that's very scary, I think, for a lot of people on both ends. Either we are in the brand side or the supplier side. People are not comfortable with that. And with all the reports I've been reading in the past in regard to how the future of fashion should be like, all of them mention transparency. And then I think everyone passed that question to me, I understand. Because I mean, right now, I can see that a lot of people, even within our structure, are not comfortable to share information. They're always concerned when they told me about a certain things happening, and then they'll be like, are we, are we sharing this? <laughs> you know, are, are we telling people about this? Or like, are, or do we need to change the way we show this number? Or like, you know, I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, for me, it's more about we just, we just show it. We just tell people how it is. If it's hard, we say it's hard. We don't need to sugarcoat it that we cannot do it or we can do it. And then we use some weird ways to make it so. And that's kind of the mindset that people have in the past for a long time. I feel it's very scary. Because for a regular consumer, you may not know. You say, oh, okay, this, you know, this T-shirt past certain certification, everything's okay. But in reality, we know things are not always as clear as just a stamp mm-hmm. <laughs> on, on, on the product that people buy. So it's, it's, a, 
it's a very big issue to to build this trust, and I think both party has a has a role to play. I think. You know, it's part of why we started this podcast too, because I think a lot of times suppliers get a bad, have a bad reputation. It's like we talk about sustainability issues, like the brands are out there, you know, wanting with these big dreams of how they want to do business. And then, but the problem is like sort of unwieldy or unruly suppliers further down the chain that are very difficult to control. And I think like that's part of what we're trying to do here is to showcase, well, that that's not always or exactly the case, you know, and that, that it's, for me, a really important part of building trust is about diversifying the narrative and, and giving credit where credit is due. And, um, and to use to your point on transparency, I think transparency is really important, but it has to be done right, because I think it can also be used as a tool of control where it's like, look, here, you know, I'm a brand and this is my supply chain and I'm, you know, putting it out there and, and uh, I, I need to know, I need to know where my products are made so that I can better control my supply chain as opposed to what if we flip it? What if we say, well, transparency is important so that, you know, manufacturers can start to say which brands they work with. And, um, and and so I think diversifying that narrative is really important. And the other thing I think that's really important too, um, which I hope we'll start to see more of, but it's like a willingness to look inward because a willing on the brand side, because a willingness to look inward shows a willingness to 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 be vulnerable and to be a little bit, you know, as you said, to say, well, you know, we're not very good at this actually, or we don't actually know how to to fix this, or how might our own procedures or rules or ways of operating actually, you know, perpetuate or incentivize certain behavior throughout our network. And that's what I'd really, I'm hoping to see more of is, is sort of like a, some kind of genuine inward looking reflection. <laughs> and, um, a couple things in that. I think, uh, one, I think we've got one piece of work that's coming off the back of this. That's the future of the fashion supply chain. And it's exactly that to say, will we take this moment to step and look at the whole system? Um, but I want, I wanted to also um, kind of respond to your initial question because in terms of how do we enable trust? And I think something that gets underestimated, but I can also speak to the value of the podcast is making the time for a new type of conversation. Um, and that's mm -hmm. actually quite a significant barrier sometimes of just even making the time to have a different type of conversation. Um, and I think, you know, when we first started Circular Leap Asia, um, you know, it, there were, it, it was even sort of making the space to say, we want to have a different type of conversation and we want to explore what it is like to have a different type of conversation with the brand was really challenging in and of itself. Um, and I think that uh, I, I don't underestimate that. But in, you know, each year, this year, in the next two years, brands, manufacturers, that network all have the opportunity to start a different type of conversation with each other. And I don't underestimate just asking those questions as, as being what begins to sort of snowball into something that's a bit bigger because it, it begins to build the very narrative that you're talking about. Like you start to say, Oh, mm -hmm. look, I hear this here. I hear this here. I hear this here. They're beginning to get a greater, a greater narrative. 
the other things that um, that kind of that at form what we found across different types of barriers like this, but they reflect what Martin has said is um, to want a new type of conversation to um, a shared, I, I don't doubt that across the value chain, there are people that want to work towards the same vision um, and, but don't have the opportunity to step out and sort of see how that whole system is working together and have a shared mm-hmm. diagnosis of what actually the challenge is, which is a little bit what you're saying is, can we all step out and sort of say, what's my part in this not working that mm-hmm. well? And then what can be our collective role in terms of helping to make it transition? So there's something about a shared of seeing your role in the system in a way that you haven't seen it before um, and being willing to make space for that and then saying, okay, then what can we do going forward? Which ties really nicely to actually what you what you guys started with and what we talked about in last week's episode, you know, manufacturers not feeling in control and changing that mindset, because just as I'd like to see from brands a sort of, yeah, what's what's our, what's our role in it that needs to come from manufacturers as well. And, you know, we can't. The other thing sort of in a principle of how you create change is you create um lateral relationships, not just the kind of vertical relationships, but manufacturers as a group began to create more connections across manufacturing to say, how can Mm. we enable this shift? And that's something that I would, I'd be curious what Martin thinks the potential is for that in terms of, or actually all of you, Jesse, yourself um, as well, in terms of that it's the manufacturer's relationship to each other in order to start a new type of conversation. Yeah, I, I found, I like, Kim, I found, I like the, the word you used, the diversify the narrative of being transparent. I, because I found it's, um, that requires first the manufacturers to take back ownership of part of this supply chain, basically. Um, which means they change the mindset to be able to see, ask the brands to be transparent for, what they what they are doing on their side, and that is very difficult. I would say it's uh, it's it requires lots of courage, and there are lots of barriers. And I'm also thinking what you said just now. Being transparent doesn't also doesn't mean between brands and uh, manufacturers, also between manufacturers and manufacturers. Also, it requires trust and partnership and a certain level of transparency. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's definitely something that's not fully reaches potential, uh, especially between manufacturers, I would say. Because a lot of us, especially if you are on the same tier, um, yeah, I mean, unless you don't, yeah, I mean, unless you're not making the same thing, right? Otherwise, it's a little tricky to even talk, uh, yeah. or, you know, to have conversations and meetings. And, it's, uh, and I've been hearing stories of all kinds and that, you know, about the, but it's, you know, within our known network of countries or uh, from other countries that you met when you go travel abroad, it's like it's the, the relationship is not there. You know, it's there and it's not there. Uh, it's there that you see each other and, and um, present and, and uh, share information in their collective ways. And it's not there once it's done. You know, I, I haven't have too much close relationship or a conversation with people who are exactly the same as my position. I mean, my position meaning like on, on a supply chain level. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's it's a really important point to highlight, and it's it's 
it's something that I've been thinking about for a long time. When I first when I first left my job as a factory manager, that was actually what I, I kind of had in my head was like, well, the only way to really disrupt the power dynamics across the supply chain as they exist today is some sort of, I don't know if collective action or is the right word because it's a, a loaded word, but collective voice is what's needed across manufacturers, that that's really the only thing that will that really I think has the the power to be disruptive. And Jesse and I have been thinking about like, well, how can what's our role in that? Um, and one of the initiatives we just recently launched is called Loose Threads. And it's going to be a set of mini episodes of anonymous questions and answers. So if you are interested in sustainability, it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a brand, a consumer or whatever, you can submit your questions to us anonymously. And then we've, we've kind of filled them out to our contacts within the supply chain and give them a chance to answer anonymously as well. But the way that we're actually going about, and then we read out the Q&A in these short mini episodes. One of the ways that we're doing that, and we're just kind of like feeling it out, we've created actually an online community for suppliers to field these questions. And it's totally anonymous. So nobody can see your IP address. No one can see your phone number, your your email. You, It's up to you what your username is and how much you want to reveal about yourself. And then we throw out these questions that we get in. And it's really interesting to see then, like, because we, we didn't just want to have it like coming one way, like, you know, we put out questions and the responses come to us. We wanted to see how people, especially suppliers, like interacted with one another and discussed this. And we wanted to create a safe space for that. And so we're starting kind of, let's say, modestly with just this loose threads project. But my our, our hope really is that it will spark some of you know, some, some bigger conversations amongst suppliers. So in that model, anonymity created trust. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's more like a sure. experiment of uh, how you cultivate trust in a highly competitive environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How, how can you do that? It's just an experiment. So at yeah, the very beginning, right. yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll see. So we've talked a lot indirectly about the roles of different players within within this whole fashion sustainability circularity landscape. Is there anything that you guys want to add specifically about the role of brands, retailers, manufacturers, policymakers, investors, NGOs in driving this innovation? I mean, the only the only piece that feels like the the magical piece at the end for me is the consumer um, is still creating that paradigm shift. And I don't know, uh, because ultimately we have to get to some place where it's not about growth all the time. And it's and, and it's not about selling everything all the time. And I and I, I don't know how to. It's still a question I'm I'm asking myself how we get that piece in. A favorite quote of mine from Circular Asia interviews was an answer to a response to the question. How will the sector emerge from the impact of COVID-19? Well, he said, you know, people only have two feet. How many shoes do we really need? And and to me, it's speaking to what is the bigger kind of question that we have to answer is, do we need to stay in a system that's always about selling as many shoes as possible? Yeah. And what's each, what's each of our responsibility in terms of setting ourselves free from this model of scale and speed? And and I... And actually, I thought about it. It's crazy because 
So I quote from the report directly. It said, analysis shows that the clearest path to profitability of for a brand lies in improving scale and speed. We are setting expectations for their supply chain partners to maintain or drive down costs. I feel this word is really sparkling. It means all the brands in the market, even sustainable brands today, has this pressure of profitable, being profitable. They have this huge pressure. And it's not from themselves, but also from their investors. From So I know it sounds so crazy to tell the brand to say, can you just order less, design less, produce less, but make something better and last longer. I, I know it sounds so crazy, but we don't have other choices, I guess, because this game is kind of at the end. So that's the expectation to the brands. Just switch. You have to switch because that's the ownership of brands in this supply chain to produce something last longer and better. And, um, and, and I think on, on that point, I would like to share another perspective on the, the question uh, in regard to like what roles can people play. And I think it's on the other spectrum of what Ariel was talking about with consumers. It's the government. I think it's the policy. Mm. I, I, it's probably not a nice thing to say, but I think it's sometimes very dangerous in nowadays of time that we're living the fate mm. of the world to the consumers. <laughs> but so I think there might be a time for the government to step in to make some hard decisions. But I know we are also in the system of the world that the government are very heavily influenced by consumers or big corporations. <laughs> so it, it's complicated, but, but I would just like to say that I think they also have a role to play. Then they can make some big shifts if they have some regulation to make some uh, force for change of either the use of materials, uh, a certain reach of certain goals in re- emissions, a reduction of use of water or waste disposal, all those kind of things, they can make a huge difference. And they can, that will force, in a way, the brains to make change. And we will most likely do that as well. So it's, it's, a, it's another thing that I think, uh, I don't think we talked too, too much today about, but I think it's also very important. So if anybody's listening in that sector, things to do Uh, the policy part of things can yeah really i I think the policy uh, can be very influential and we're all kind of afraid of it uh meaning that we're just going you know that that let us do what we do don't let the market decide and it's been too long i think it's not really helping us simultaneously i think covid just governments just exercise their ability to make very big, bold decisions during COVID and and mm-hmm. to find funds and to pass policies. And so hopefully that's a muscle as we enter into increasing impacts from climate change. Maybe there's a scenario where the government has found that muscle. When the inequality is so big, then sustainable brands, unfortunately, will become a game only for very few people. Then I expect NGOs or policymakers NGOs and policymakers could focus on how to minimize the inequality. I, I think the problem right now, it's not sustainability is too expensive. It's not it's not affordable. The problem right now in the world is pollution is too cheap. I, that, that's the case for me. I, I think that's the true issue. Like We, we never consider the air we, we pump out, the, the pollution water that we, we, we know pour into the river and all those kinds of things. For the past, I don't know, maybe a hundred or more years. It was not calculated into the economy. I had this discussion with my dad just earlier today. He's like, there's no such thing. I was like, I mean, of course there is. 
there are ways to calculate those into the factor of how much tree values uh, uh, to, to generate benefit to the environment, to the ecosystem. But we don't really give a, you know, about it. So it's more of how, uh, <laughs> how do we bring that back to the system to, to calculate and make that into the whole operation of life. And also adding on that, I think talking about uh, not being affordable, I think that's when uh, I mentioned earlier when the government should come in. The, the idea of something like a UBI, the universal basic income, should be implemented that people have a safe, safety net to have the basic needs. Like Ariel just was talking about a shoe, right? You, need, you don't need 16 pairs to live, right? So you need, only need one pair. So how can we build a system of a society that everybody at least to get, okay, two pairs, okay, how about that? Two pairs of shoes uh, as a basic <laughs> Right, so you can you can change when you're washing the other pair, or you return the other pair. So, so the, the idea is that there should be some safety net to support that. But I think the, the every time when we talk about this topic about affordability and all that, I just feel like that the whole issue comes down to because pollution is so ch- so cheap that we are able to generate all these things in the world in a ri- ridiculously low price, and people just kind of consume it and throw it away. And unless we change that system and having some kind of cost, whether it's carbon tax or any other formats uh, to, to show the true impact of the whole manufacturing system, it's very hard. It's, it's very hard to change that. And it shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't be like we cannot afford something that's good for us. And that's kind of linked to, I guess, the whole idea of human rights as well, right? If we want to have the rights to water, to air, to living, to life, they should be the basic not, I'm not asking for six in pair of shoes, but I need at least two pairs. And how can we build a system to have two pairs and that the people who are willing to pay to get the rest of the 14 pairs? That's okay if they're willing to pay for that. But the system itself should support us to have that, that, that two pairs. Uh, and that goes to the question of how can policy come in to create that structure? Because I'm not sure we can get it done by just free market. <laughs> I'm trying, but I don't know if we can get there soon enough. <laughs> Martin's really hit the nail on the head in terms of that it's the business model itself that's externalizing the cost of pollution, Um, that if you can shift that paradigm, then you can begin to address the issues of inequality. I think I was also thinking of the UBI, universal basic income, and one of the interesting things around, because inequality isn't just addressed by, uh, you address inequality by being paid more, by having you know access to a number of different uh, factors. One of the interesting things about universal basic income is that it represents a paradigm shift that people are not lifted out of poverty just through employment and then getting a better job and then getting a better job and then getting a better job. That actually that we could live in and design a system that actually says everyone has a right to a certain level of well-being that's not based on economic growth mm. but just that we provide that well-being that 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 is that's a given so it rep, universal basic income represents a paradigm shift on how you address poverty because it's not just about getting another job um, uh, so it'll be interesting and covid introduced co- a number of countries introduced universal basic income as a as a uh, adaptation measure coming out of COVID, and I don't know if that will begin to be the signal of a paradigm shift in terms of how we think about taking care of one another. I think that's the perfect optimistic note to to land on today. <laughs> that was really fun. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. 
To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.